Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition. On WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station, I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into the topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we're happy to welcome back to the program Joe Minerick of the Committee for Economic Development. Joe and CED have been frequent collaborators with the Concord Coalition over the years, and today we'll get his take on the economic recovery and an idea he has for whittling down the extra debt run up by the federal government in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman will join the conversation, which begins right now. Joe, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. I'm very happy to be here. Well, uh, to use a technical phrase, Joe Minerick has a ton of experience analyzing the federal budget and the economy. Uh, he was chief economist at the Office of Management and Budget for all eight years of the Clinton administration. Uh, he worked on such things as the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993 and the Bipartisan Balanced Budget Act of 1997. Uh, prior to his service in the Clinton administration, Minerick worked closely with Senator Bill Bradley on his efforts to reform the federal income tax. And that, of course, culminated in the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Joe also served on the Hill as chief economist of the House Budget Committee uh, and staff director of the Joint Economic Committee. And off the Hill, he served on the Bipartisan Policy Center's Debt Reduction Task Force, which I was also on with Joe, and uh, Joe was also with the National Academy of Sciences, our fiscal future project, uh, two efforts to reduce the federal uh, deficit. And of course, one other thing I should mention is that Joe was a regular on the fiscal wake-up tour from 2005 to 2010, uh, a traveling group of budget wonks that uh, went around trying to wake people up about the, uh, about the uh, fiscal challenges ahead. Uh, and uh, I was privileged to be on that as well. So Joe, let's uh, begin with your overall take on the economy. Um, you know, the pandemic caused major disruptions, both from its health effects and from the uh, actions taken to control the spread of the virus. And now we're opening back up again and there are some mixed signals about the pace of the recovery uh, and the spread of, you know, the, the breadth of the uh, recovery. And the main theme seems to be that we're in uncharted waters. So um, if you would put on your captain's hat, uh, <laughs> these choppy waters and tell us, what do you see as the main challenges right now? Well, Bob, actually, you're reminding me uh, one time I was out speaking to a citizen audience. Uh, and uh, after I gave my presentation, two people came up to the podium and one of them said to me, you know, you economists are really historians. 
you know, you, you look back at things that happened in the past and draw patterns that apply to the future. And the other person said, no, you're not historians, you're psychologists. You're trying to figure out uh, how people behave and why they're motivated to do certain things. Well, right now, I think that, uh, you know, economists are probably you know, somewhere between um, psychologists, historians, physicians, uh, and uh, business consultants. Uh, you're absolutely right. We are in uncharted waters. Uh, we have not had a, an economy anywhere like this in the living memory of any American. Uh, you're going back to uh, you know, the Spanish flu, the so-called Spanish flu of 1918 and subsequent years to look at a public health impact on the economy. It's anything like what we're having now. And in fact, back then things were different. And of course the economy was different in nature from what we have now. Government's role was very different. So yes, we're trying to figure out what the heck is going on around us. Um, the most important factors, it seems to me, in the situation we face today include um, the fact that we had this pandemic which prevented people from being in proximity with one another. So you have some kinds of economic activity that do not involve physical proximity, and you have other types of economic activity that don't. Uh, the kinds of things that do require people to get together were the leisure, hospitality, dining out, travel, those kinds of things. So you had particular segments, particular industries in the economy that were just absolutely knocked on their backs. Uh, somebody described it as putting the, that part of the economy in a coma uh, to enable it to recover. Uh, so you took classes of people, you know, generally people who were involved in service businesses, many of them, you know, their skills were interpersonal in nature. They didn't have skills that could be easily translated into other forms of work. Uh, oftentimes, people in that those lines of work, uh, you know, earned relatively low pay, even back before the pandemic. And those people had to be literally caught from falling off the edge of the table in an economic sense. Uh, and that was why we had the extraordinary legislative steps that were undertaken to try to help the economy along. Many of those services businesses for whom those people were employed um, either had to close their doors temporarily or literally went out of business. Uh, meanwhile, you had the Federal Reserve pumping enormous liquidity into the economy, which meant that the financial markets were quite buoyant. They did extremely well. Uh, and so the people who were still at work, people who had accumulated considerable wealth uh, were all doing quite well. 
while a very large number of relatively low paid workers uh, were flat on their figurative economic backs. And now we're getting to the point where touch wood, the public health is more or less restored. We have to hope that that continues because there is still the risk uh, of parts of the nation uh, which have not had success at getting people inoculated against the virus. Uh, the virus is mutating. Uh, it is quite possible that those parts of the country could suffer very badly still. And while these mutations are going on, uh, you know, we're playing the, the virus lottery. Uh, we got to hope that we do not come up with a really bad number and wind up with a new virus that puts us all right back at square one in terms of being vulnerable and needing a whole brand new vaccine to uh, protect people and you know, with all of the consequences of the delay and the uh, vaccination effort that would have to be uh, put into place. So what we're hoping for at this point is continued public health, the formation of new service businesses to take the place of the ones that are closed down providing employment opportunities for the people who lost their jobs uh, in the pandemic and who are waiting for jobs in that same service industry because they don't have skills that are immediately uh, applicable to other lines of business, other lines of work. Uh, and all of that, unfortunately, is gonna take some time. Uh, we've gotten the low-hanging fruit. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, for, for a while there, the, 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 the key data point that everybody was watching like crazy were initial unemployment claims every week, every Thursday morning, everybody was on that number. Um, it seems like right now that the big number that people are watching is inflation. Um, and uh, I, I know that inflation statistics have been somewhat surprising, even to, to members of the Federal Reserve Board, who it's, who it's their responsibility to watch inflation. And I guess my question to you is whether or not uh, the inflation reports that we're going to see this year, are they really something that we should worry about? Or, it, or are the inflation numbers that we're seeing this year transitory, meaning that they're a function of, of low prices last year, supply chain problems, et cetera? Or are, are we really looking at uh, a, a problem uh, with, with Federal Reserve policy and, and inflation? Let me address that. And also, I, th I think unemployment claims are still interesting, <laughs> uh, but uh, more interesting than I'd, I'd like them to be. But I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, I am confident that the inflation that we have now is going to prove to be transitory, uh, but I'm not certain. Why would I be confident? Uh, the last inflation release, the biggest numerical, you know, just looking at the arithmetic, uh, the biggest arithmetic push on the consumer price index was used cars. Used cars are a pure auction market. Uh, you can't manufacture a new used car. 
Right. Uh, you know, so it's a question of what are people willing to pay for the used car that's sitting on the lot? Uh, and people wanted cars. Uh, they bid a lot of money and uh, they bid up the price of those used cars. But uh, the used cars do not embody any costs. And what we need to be worried about in this economy is cost push inflation. And uh, there's no cost push inflation in used cars. And the one thing you know is if the prices of used cars are jumping up, there is a ceiling. And the ceiling is the price of a new car. You're not going to pay for a used car what a new car costs. So right. they're only going to go up so far. So that's, that's one kind of unusual uh, item. Uh, in recent months, we've also had some push on energy prices, including oil and the derivative gasoline. Uh, there is one thing that we know about oil prices, and that is there's a ceiling there too. And the ceiling is constituted of the US production capacity using horizontal drilling and advanced technologies of pulling um, uh, oil out of the rock under the United States. It's more expensive, but if the market price of oil gets up to what the price of horizontal drilling oil is, uh, the horizontal drilling starts and it limits the upward pressure on oil. And uh, that is certainly a ceiling on oil at about somewhere in the range of 60, $80 per barrel. We don't have to worry about oil going above that. So that's a constraint on the uh, cost that we're gonna see. Uh, the other point that you mentioned, Tori, is extremely important, and that is the disruption of production and of value chains in the pandemic. Uh, and one of the things that we have seen in recent months is that gradually, slowly but surely, some of those disruptions are being bridged. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we're seeing uh, interruptions in supply uh, that are eroding and the flow of goods is beginning to catch up again. Um, so all of those factors, it seems to me, do suggest that uh, we are going to see, uh, although we're seeing right now, uh, an acceleration of inflation, that acceleration is going to ebb and we're going to go back down to uh, a lower rate of inflation, in part for the same reason why inflation has been limited for a long time. And that is in today's world of instantaneous communications uh, over the internet, everything is incredibly competitive. Uh, we have development around the world. If you can't buy something from one country, another country is going to be willing and able to supply you with that, that good or service. Uh, you can search for prices on the internet. Nobody is able to raise prices and gouge you because they know that there's 
95 chances out of 100 that you're simply going to turn down the deal and find a competitive price from somebody else. Uh, it's a jungle out there and it benefits the consumer and it limits price increases. Mm -hmm. Joe, but, before we, Joe, before we, oh, I didn't want to cut you off there, but uh, we need to, to take a break. So hold that thought and, uh, and also uh, your comments on unemployment claims. Uh, and we'll be right back to talk with uh, Joe Minerick of CED about the, uh, the economy and, uh, and an idea for paying the pandemic, paying for the pandemic debt. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined by Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition, and Joe Minerick, Senior Vice President and Director of Research at the Committee for Economic Development. Uh, and we're talking about the economy and uh, an idea uh, that Joe has been writing about at CED for paying, uh, paying for the pandemic debt. And we'll get to that in a minute. But Joe, before the break, you were making some final points about uh, inflation and, and maybe some comments about the unemployment claims. Let me start with the one concern that I think we have about inflation, and that actually predates the pandemic, uh, but it's still around. And that is um, the shortage of labor and in particular certain aspects of talent. Um, as you know, the population is aging. People are leaving the workforce. Uh, as a result of that, we are short of labor. And if you ask folks who are trying to hire people with particular skills, uh, many of them, you know, technical skills of you know, relatively traditional natures, plumbers, welders, things like that, in addition to the folks who deal with technology issues. Uh, they've got a bid for that talent. Uh, and as a result, the cost of labor right now is rising. There's an increase in wages. That's a great thing for people who want to work. Uh, the problem is it does build increases in cost into the system. Now, employers are working like crazy to try to prevent uh, increasing prices. They want to stay competitive. But there is always the risk that those increases in wages could get built into the cost structure, could begin to compound themselves going forward, and could push us towards faster inflation. I don't believe that that is going to drive us to high rates of inflation again, because it's a very competitive economy out there. However, that is a concern and we need to keep an eye on it. Now, I did mention that I have a little bit of unhappiness about what's going on in new unemployment insurance claims. They've declined, but they're still running at like double to triple what they were before the pandemic broke. So there's still a lot of churning going in, in on in the workforce, uh, there are still people being laid off. And that's a little troubling in an economy that is recovering and we hope is going to continue to grow. 
Um, I'm, I'd be interested in your take on something that's uh, getting a lot of attention, which is the enhanced unemployment benefits. Um, you know, at last summer, they were enacted at uh, $600 a week because every, people were out of work and, uh, and, and had no options. Uh, and uh, it was pretty unanimously thought that uh, that was the right thing to do. They were scaled back uh, to about 400 a week, I think, and for a while. And then uh, the, the most recent bill uh, set a, a, the, the bonus at 300 a week. That's due to expire in September. And it's kicked off quite a debate about whether uh, the fact that businesses are having trouble hiring has something to do with the fact that people are getting enhanced unemployment benefits and might be getting more than they would if they went back to work. Um, there, but there are other reasons that uh, that could factor into that uh, lack of opportunity, uh, schools being closed still, lack of opportunity for uh, childcare, because things are, you know, bulky as we open back up again, it's not a smooth process. Um, do you think that there is, uh, well, I mean, where do you come down to that? Is there just like merit to a lot of things? There's a lot of things going on and you're not quite sure which uh, factor is. So I guess bottom line question is, uh, should these enhanced unemployment benefits be allowed to expire in September or, or, or continue? Um, I think that we're at a stage where we can allow them to expire. Uh, the likelihood is that in September, we're going to have schools reopening uh, to uh, classroom education. Uh, along with that, we will likely have institutional child care back. Uh, although I will note that apart from public child care, which is taxpayer supported, a lot of private child care businesses were among those service businesses that went down for the count in the pandemic. So the private side of that business is going to take some rebuilding. Uh, that having been said, uh, for those who are concerned about it, half the states are allowing those benefits to expire early. They're going away in September in any event. So in all likelihood, um, that's not going to be an issue for the long term. But I would take you back to one point I made a moment ago, and that is even before the pandemic, businesses found that hiring talented individuals was a very difficult thing to do. It continues to be hard. Skills are in short supply and uh, talking to some of the uh, business executives who are part of the Committee for Economic Development in the course of my job, one of the things that I hear them saying is, I'm hiring, I'm trying to hire people with sophisticated skills where $300 a week worth of unemployment compensation is totally irrelevant. The pay is way above that. And I can't find people. So we have a skill short economy. We have an economy where because of the aging of the population, the labor force is growing very slowly. And a lot of the problem that we have with the availability of labor and the cost of labor goes way beyond those questions about uh, the federal pandemic unemployment assistance. So 
one of the we, we've talked a lot about today about the impact of the of the pandemic on economic factors, employment, inflation, et cetera. Um, I'd like to switch a little bit and talk about the impact of the, the pandemic on the federal budget, specifically the, the, the five to six trillion dollars in, in coronavirus aid and relief that we've passed. Um, it's, it's obvious that we financed it all with debt. Uh, we're now we we're now you know our debt held by the public relative to GDP is is reaching historic levels. Um, you recently wrote a, a paper about financing the the pandemic debt, and you had some ideas, and I was wondering if you could share them. Happy to uh, working with a couple of our trustees uh, on the committee for economic development. At one point, we three of us we looked at each other and said we've got to deal with this and we can and the idea we came up with i mean one thing we know from history and you know you folks are know it as well as anybody else policymakers look at a huge debt and a large budget deficit and they recoil and they say i'm going to deal with this some other day mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we need to find a handle on this problem such that we can take a first step. And what we suggested was to take this pandemic debt, the increment of the debt that was caused by the hit that the economy took and the changes in policy that were put in place to try to revive the economy, uh, and take that debt and come up with a mechanism to service it and ultimately to retire it. If we can segregate that pandemic debt, uh, use that as a first step. It's a confidence builder. It helps to reduce the buildup of interest costs. And as we all know, uh, a dollar that the federal government has to pay on interest, it can't pay for all the things that everybody expects the federal government to do whether they like government or not, they want national defense, they want law enforcement, they want infrastructure. Um, so what we suggested that we do is we take an amount of debt that is equal to the increment caused by the pandemic, we segregate that amount of debt, we put it under the auspices of a public corporation we finance it with very long-term fixed rate treasury securities. And we suggest that for this purpose, uh, the market we believe would accept longer term securities than the 30 year treasuries that are now the longest in the that we issue. Uh, we suggest 40 or even 50 year bonds. Um, and we create a dedicated revenue source that would in the short term service those bonds and in the longer term with economic growth would give us additional funds over the fixed cost of those fixed rate bonds. So you sell fixed rate bonds for over the long term and you know how many dollars you've got to pay in mm -hmm. debt service costs every year start at that level, but have a dedicated revenue source that will grow faster, that will grow in step with the economy, take the extra dollars and retire 
uh, gradually those bonds. And over time, you retire a few bonds, your interest cost goes down, you retire a few more bonds, the revenue source grows, you retire some more bonds. By the time we get to the, uh, the maturity date of those bonds, we expect that we would have the bonds totally retired. When that pandemic debt is fully retired, uh, we would have the revenue source for servicing and retiring the pandemic debt expire. So it would be a temporary revenue source. It would pay down that pandemic debt. If we can cooperate on, if we can make it there, we can make it anywhere. If we can service that pandemic debt, we can deal with the rest of the budget, which we all know we've got to do. Mm -hmm. Even before the pandemic, we had a debt that was growing faster than our economy, and that cannot go on forever. We've got to address that. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby. I'm uh, talking with Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition, and Joe Minerick, Senior Vice President and Director of Research at the Committee for Economic Development. Um, Tori, you were uh, asking Joe about uh, about the paying off the post-pandemic debt, and uh, that uh, leads to another question about uh, if we don't do anything about the rising debt pre and post pandemic, what happens? No, I, I think that's the, the, the question right there. Uh, we knew before we had hit the pandemic hit that, that we had uh, unsustainable forecasts of, of debt uh, in the future and the pandemics only added to that. Um, you know, Jason Furman, Harvard economist has put out plans uh, that you know, try and stabilize debt to GDP at 140, 150%. And even that's really, really hard to, to get to based on all the, the spending uh, that we've, we've uh, placed into the baseline. And so my, my question becomes is, you know, if, if we are unable to, to address our debt levels, if, if our lawmakers continue to kick the can down the road, what does that tipping point look like where the global economy basically says to the United States, enough, you're over leveraged and we're done? The first thing that we know, Tori, uh, and uh, you, know, you and Bob, I think know this as well as anybody, uh, when you get to that moment, it's already too late. Uh, we can't wait for this problem to begin and then decide that we're going to try to deal with it because at that point you're in big trouble. There are all sorts of different things that could go wrong. Um, you know, we've shown ourselves more than capable of shooting ourselves in the foot. You could imagine that you get to a piece of debt limit legislation and folks misguidedly say that, you know, if we hold fast and don't increase the debt limit, we're going to force the country to fix the problem. Well, that is the problem that we're talking about, because the adjustments that would have to be made in policy uh, to uh, hold the debt limit constant, you know, it's eliminating the budget deficit immediately. Uh, the only way you can do that is raise taxes. There's, there's nothing else that can happen that fast, even though you would surely be doing things like cutting social security benefits for the 88-year-old widow in the walk-up cold water flat, uh, et cetera. You could imagine the rest of the world, which buys you know, at the margin 
about half of our debt, uh, deciding that they don't want to show up for an auction or that they want to dump those securities uh, before it's too late. Uh, you know, we've talked about the uh, the metaphor of the crowded theater where somebody smells smoke. You know, you don't find people lining up two by two and walking in an orderly fashion out the door. Everybody wants to be the first. And we know from those kinds of disasters that the injuries happen when people are stuck in the doorway, not, you know, that's the, the problem. And that's what will happen in financial markets when we get to the point where you have that kind of a pandemic. You can have other policy making failures. Um, uh, you can't pass appropriations bills. You uh, find yourself uh, scrambling for dollars to uh, uh, pay uh, social security benefits because uh, the Social Security Trust Fund has treasury securities in it, but those aren't, uh, you know, to, to market, the, to get cash for those, you in effect have to sell them to the public. Uh, all of those kinds of issues can arise. And uh, um, I, I try to, when I, when I talk to people about this, I try to emphasize, you know, by the time you know it's happening, it's already too late. This is a problem that you have to forestall. You have got to get a handle on this issue ahead of time. The one thing I will add to this, uh, and again, you understand this as well as anyone, um, the force that is driving us uh, in the long term uh, is the rate of growth of healthcare costs. It's what we have to pay to deliver a unit of healthcare service, supercharged by the fact that our population is growing older, which means that we need more units of service. But the fundamental point is the cost of delivering healthcare. And so what we need to do ahead of time is we need a fundamental change in our healthcare system so that we can deliver quality care to all Americans at lower cost. Last question for you, Joe. Um, do you think that Americans and specifically voters, voting age Americans, have some responsibility with respect to the level of debt that we've accumulated and our ability to make the policy changes that we need to change that directory, trajectory in the sense that I think Amer voters need to give lawmakers the space to have these difficult conversations with them about the choices the, 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 and the priorities that, that, that we need to make. I mean, you can't, I mean, I would like to think that most of our lawmakers are, are, are good, kind and wanna do the right thing. Um, but they also want to maintain their jobs, right? Just like everybody else, we want to keep our job. Um, and talking about the need to reform Social Security, to reform Medicare, to address healthcare inflation, to do all these things, those are tough conversations and they affect everybody. It's not like you can silo those things in just one and, and, and just say, we're only going to affect these people over here. So do you think that voters... Uh, have some responsibility in fixing this problem by giving lawmakers the space to talk about it in an open and honest way? If you ask voters what they're looking for in a candidate in a, an opinion poll, the answer you get is, I want somebody who will tell me the truth. 
I want people who will give me the problem straight up uh, so that I can make my judgments about what I want to do about it. If you look at recent election cycles, and by this I mean over you know, several decades, what you will find is that the candidates who have been successful have, I'll be frank, not really told the voters the truth. Candidates who have told voters the truth and includes some folks uh, who uh, you know, have been uh, members of the board of the Concord Coalition uh, have gone down in flames. Uh, you know, I, to, to, be, to be blunt about it. Uh, so that to me tells me that on the one hand, voters say that they want an honest assessment of the problem. On the other hand, if they see an honest assessment of the problem, they say, I don't want that, that at all. And, you know, you can go back a couple of election cycles and you've got candidates who said they would never touch social security and never touch Medicare. Uh, and they've done very well. Uh, so in part, I think you can say that voters by their voting, as opposed to their answers to opinion polls, uh, have said, uh, I want my government, but I don't want to have to pay for it. And if somebody will promise me that, uh, he'll get my vote. Uh, and if somebody tells me that uh, to deal with this requires some pain, uh, I'm not going to be fond of that guy. And, uh, you know, I. It, Joe, I can think, I, that reminds me of a little vignette when the Concord Coalition, shortly after the Concord Coalition started. Paul Songus, one of our founding co chairmen and a, a former presidential candidate, uh, was testifying before the, I, I forget exactly which committee it was, uh, but it was the Senate committee. And he went through a list of things on the hard choice side, having to do with entitlement programs and revenues and how we needed to confront these things. And one of the senators on the panel said to him, well, you know, well, Paul, did you, did you go out and say this on your presidential campaign? And Sanga said, yes, I did. And the, the senator said, and now you're chairman of the Concord Coalition. <laughs> so, um, uh, making his point subtly, by the way, that senator was a man named Joe Biden. <laughs> there you go. Um, so anyway, yes. <laughs> we've, we've, we've got to face up and, yeah. uh, it's, it's, uh, the time is coming. Uh, we're getting, you know, one of the stories that you, one of the lines that you hear, and you'll, this will echo for you, uh, the United States gets a pass in the financial markets because we are the best looking horse in the glue factory. Oh, right now, one of the points that we made in that recent policy statement about the pandemic debt is right now the entire glue factory is underwater. Yeah, so right. we're we're getting to the point where that is not necessarily going to uh, buy us any any peace, uh, and uh, we need to start thinking about this more more carefully. And the Committee for Economic Development, the Conference Board, uh, and uh, the Concord Coalition, I am proud to say, are among the organizations that have been making this point and 
trying as carefully and in as reasoned a fashion as we can to get people to pay attention uh, and to come to understand that they're going to have to start taking this seriously. And I hope that we can manage to pull that off. And I think we can, uh, we can, we can end there with the hopefully uh, unanimous agreement that it is possible to do. I mean, I think that that's, yeah, we, 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 we make the warnings and, and, and the prognostications and everything. That's premised on not doing anything. And the alternative is do something. So, you know, I look back to the uh, early 90s, uh, Joe, when you were at uh, OMB, uh, it, looked, it looked like a bad situation then. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it kind of bothered me by the end of the decade when people said, oh, you worry about all these horrible things and they didn't come to pass. Look at what happened now where, you know, we've got a budget surplus. And I'm sure you felt the same way. It was like, well, that's because we did something. We, <laughs> the, the bad things didn't come to pass because we did something. And- uh, Cut spending and raise taxes. Yeah, I mean- ABA 97. So, I think if we just uh, went back to, to doing things, even starting, you know, incrementally, uh, like your proposal to, to look, you know, concentrate on the pandemic yet. I mean, pick something and, and start working on the problem. Um, it certainly is, is something that uh, it can be fixed. And you're making the, the very important point. If you chip away at the problem, uh, you are over a long period of time making compound interest your friend instead of your enemy. Uh, and we've got to start that process. Uh, and but this time we've got to stick with it. Uh, you know, it, we got to to uh, the year 2000 and the nation figuratively put a dollar into the piggy bank and to celebrate its good behavior, it smashed the piggy bank and took the money and went to Vegas. Uh, we've got to deal with this one differently. We've got to stick with it. Uh, and we've got to get that debt curve. You know, at least as a percentage of our economy, we've got to get it going down and we've got to keep it going down. Mm -hmm. Well, Joe, thank you for uh, joining us this week on Facing the Future. Uh, and uh, that's all the time we have for this week. But we'll, we, fear not, we will be back next week <laughs> with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>